democracy this is out of order a german marshall fund podcast about how the world was is and will be ordered so by now everyone has been immersed in news about the coronavirus at gmf we are all working from home we're recording this podcast from home one big topic that's come up is this concept of an infodemic this flow of disinformation about coronavirus so today we're going to talk about just one aspect of disinformation around the coronavirus with two of my colleagues who are experts in this field, Laura Rosenberger and Zach Cooper, co-directors of GMF's Alliance for Securing Democracy. Thank you guys for joining us over this Zoom makeshift studio that we are working at. <laughs> Thanks, Sydney. Great to be with you. So Chinese leaders have appeared to be more focused on manipulating information to gain geopolitical advantage. And this is kind of a new tactic or break from the past in terms of what Beijing used to do in terms of disinformation campaigns. First, I want to back up a little bit. Let's talk about what's happening right now. What is it that we've seen so far in the last couple of weeks in terms of the information or disinformation that Beijing or the Chinese Communist Party appears to be pushing? And who is doing the pushing of that information. China's use of its information apparatus to try to control and manipulate and suppress unwanted information is nothing particularly new. It's got a pretty sophisticated propaganda apparatus that crosses over different parts of its government. And traditionally, China's used that a lot internally to try to control information that the Chinese people have access to. But increasingly, we've been seeing the Chinese party state turn that apparatus externally. And in the context of coronavirus, we've seen this manifest in a few different ways. The first is it really started internally, as with many of its efforts, to suppress information early on about the virus itself. Many listeners will have heard about the, quote, whistleblower doctor who tried to raise very early alarms about the coronavirus, and Chinese officials actually you know, censored and suppressed that content, basically punished him for spreading information about that, and then undertook pretty significant efforts internally to suppress information about the virus early on. Now that China has had its own crisis, health crisis from the virus, and appears, at least from official statistics, to be getting it under control, China's really seeking to change the narrative about its handling of the virus by using a, a lot of externally focused propaganda and information manipulation efforts. And those are really twofold, I would say. The first is a lot of information and content that's aimed at portraying China and its response as the superior model. So highlighting ways that the U.S. and Europe are failing in their response doing a significant propaganda push around Chinese aid to other countries and really trying to portray China as the partner of first resorts over the United States. But the even more aggressive and really new part of what we've seen China doing is actually sowing disinformation itself through Chinese diplomatic accounts on social media, social media platforms, by the way, that are blocked in China, as well as um, party state media, official media that um, is in the English language or other languages externally, basically 
trying to raise doubts about where the virus actually started. So one conspiracy theory has been that this was the result of a U.S. bioweapons attack. Another was that the uh, virus actually originated in Italy. And this is basically appears to be aimed at kind of spreading this idea that it's impossible to know where the virus actually really started in the first place. And, and Zach, you guys wrote about that this appears to be a new step in the Communist Party's um, quote-unquote discourse of power. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on that term? Of course. So the, the Communist Party, as Laura said, has used uh, discourse power very successfully to manage the narrative within China for decades. And the goal has been to make sure that people within China believe that the Communist Party is delivering on the promises that it's made, that it's delivering economic growth, some level of stability and political representation for people within China. But typically, we haven't seen the Chinese push into the U.S. information market with the kind of open disinformation in which they're engaged right now. And I think that's the the real change here. Now, there are two hypotheses about why this might be happening. Uh, One hypothesis is that maybe the Communist Party is feeling confident, right, that they have managed the virus, at least the early days, uh, was difficult, but they've gotten through it. And now the rest of the world is suffering from this challenge. Uh, the The other view, which I'm Uh, partial to, is that the party is deeply worried. That, in fact, the party has promised its people that it will deliver economic growth, and that this year uh, there's going to be a global recession. That recession has already hit in China, and it's hitting the rest of the world now, and it's not clear that the party knows how to manage it. And also that the, the roots of that recession, the roots of the pandemic, are within China. And in some degree, uh, they are the fault of the Communist Party's mismanagement of the early days of the crisis and their efforts to uh, prevent whistleblowers from drawing attention to the need for uh, better uh, responses to the early days of the crisis. And so I think there may be deep worries within the Communist Party that this, this evolving crisis is actually going at the core of the logic of the Communist Party's hold on power, its ability to deliver uh, economic growth, its ability to deliver political uh, and social stability. And if that's the case, uh, I think we might be seeing the Communist Party attacking uh, the information space more in an effort to sort of Uh, distract from some of the problems within China, not from the uh, place of confidence that others might believe it's coming from. Hmm. That's really interesting. So you said it's basically, it's a distraction, but they're also using platforms that are banned actually in China. Do you guys get the sense that this is coming from the top and this is a coordinated effort or this is enterprising diplomatic accounts and just different actors kind of pushing different theories? What's what's your sense from your tracking so far? So there are debates within the China analytic community on parts of what you just asked about. So my, my best sense, what I would say is that there are clear signs of coordination across different diplomats and between diplomats and the party state media that are pushing disinformation in a way that is very different than in the past and does appear to have some level of coordination. That doesn't preclude that 
there is also some entrepreneurial aspect to this going on. But one of the things we do know is that there's one particular official who is the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson who started surfacing last year as a particularly aggressive online diplomat when he was stationed in Pakistan as the number two official at the Chinese embassy there. And he then has since been promoted to a much more prominent role, you know, with regard to the use of information in the foreign ministry. So somebody put him there, believing that uh, whatever he was doing in his aggressive posture when he was in Pakistan was something they wanted to see more of. We've also, over the course of the past six months, seen an explosion of uh, Twitter accounts by Chinese diplomats, ambassadors, embassies. This is not a platform they had really been using previously in any significant way. And we have seen just the number of these accounts explode. We've then seen two real upticks in the use of those platforms for messaging. One was around the Hong Kong protests last year, and then the second has been the coronavirus. Now, there is some sense that there is possibly a debate happening within the foreign ministry and the CCP more broadly about this kind of more aggressive messaging strategy. The Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Tian Tiankai, was asked over the weekend about the use of these, you know, disinformation narratives, in particular the conspiracy theory about the virus being the result of a, of a U.S. bioweapons attack. And Tian Tiankai basically disavowed that theory and said that that was, you know, not something that that uh, he or the or the Chinese government was supporting. Now, there's two explanations for that. One is that Sui Tiankai is genuinely taking a, a different approach than what the rest of his foreign ministry is doing. The other is that it's a bit of a good cop, bad cop routine. And Sui Tiankai, a Chinese ambassador to the U.S., is you know basically doing his job of um, assuaging concerns in the U.S. about what China's doing while the propaganda apparatus continues to do its thing. I personally, number one, don't think these are entirely mutually exclusive theories, and I am biased towards the second explanation in that I think that this, what appears to be a coordinated strategy is the ascendant approach in the Chinese information environment. But I think the question for me remains, is this a permanent new strategy? Is this experimenting with some new approaches in a particularly particularly vulnerable moment um, and at a particularly opportune time? Is this going to be a one-off or are we going to see a whole lot more of this? And I think that remains for me an open question. But Zach, I know, also has some thoughts on on these questions. Yeah, of course. I I do think it's likely that this may represent a new approach. I, I don't think we know for sure, but I, th- I think one time that people look at Chinese behavior changing in the last 15 or, or so years is right after the global financial crisis. And what we saw was that Chinese leaders were much more confident in their ability to accomplish their objectives on the world stage. And coming out of the financial crisis, we saw China start to engage in activities that were much more assertive and in some cases aggressive than they had done previously. I don't think it's a coincidence that we are amidst the next financial crisis, next global economic crisis, and we're seeing Chinese behavior change again. Uh, I think it's probably likely that uh, Chinese leaders are reassessing where they stand in relative power terms and thinking, you know, yes, the crisis hit first in China, but uh, the economic damage it's doing outside is pretty severe as well. 
And uh, maybe this can be something that actually ends up in China's favor. And so I, I do think it's possible that this will signal the beginning of a much more assertive Chinese set of behaviors, especially in the information space, and, and maybe in particular against the United States, where they really have tried not to use so much of the disinformation tactics that, say, the Russians have used. I, I see this, therefore, really as a sea change in Chinese behavior in the disinformation area. You mentioned Re- Russia, and um, I want to get to that in a minute. But just one more question for you, Zach. Uh, I think Laura mentioned Hong Kong as kind of another touch point in terms of seeing an uptick and more of an effort for di- pushing disinformation. If I'm remembering correctly, when the Hong Kong protests were going on, there was also a big discovery of inauthentic Facebook accounts that were dumped. Correct me if I'm mischaracterizing this. Are we seeing that kind of behavior in this instance as well? Or is this? are we seeing this as more of an official diplomatic messaging? Or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. And, and we're still doing the analysis to know for sure. We've absolutely seen an increase in the official messaging from China Daily to Global Times to the ambassadors from China that are not just in the United States and in Italy, but all over the world. So yes, there's an increase in official messaging, but there have been some initial signs that there may be efforts to sort of amplify these messages. I don't think we know the answer for sure, but I'm guessing over the next few weeks and and latest months that we'll start seeing signs that in fact, this is a coordinated effort. Again, we still need to put together the analytics on that. But that's certainly what we saw in the Hong Kong case, right? Which was the first real case of a large Chinese disinformation effort against the United States using social media. And I think given the efforts the Chinese government has gone through to pass along disinformation in this area, it would be quite surprising if they weren't doing some of those same tactics on this issue set. It's so... Getting to Russia, you guys are arguing that there's an increasing mirroring of China's tactics, mirroring Russia's tactics. So, Laura, can you remind us what are the tactics that Russia has traditionally used in the disinformation space and how is it that China seems to be taking a page from their playbook? Yeah, so Russia has used a number of different tactics in its disinformation efforts. I think the primary parallels that we see here is the way that they use their official accounts and their state media. And so I'll, I'll come back to some very specific points there. But one of the you know broad approaches that we have seen Russia traditionally use that we had not really previously seen China use is an effort to really sow confusion, distrust, discord, um, and, you know, essentially create the idea that um, there may not really be, you know, the idea of truth. For instance, after the shootdown of the MH17 flight over Ukraine, in 2014, the Russians, in an attempt to deflect blame from themselves for the downing of that airliner and the murder of nearly 300 people, was to spread multiple theories about what might have happened with MH17 and why the plane fell from the sky. We similarly, after the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter. Um, He was a former Russian intelligence official living in the UK. He and his daughter were poisoned by Russian intelligence officers. 
And similarly, in that instance, Russian officials and state media spread multiple conflicting conspiracy theories about possible alternative explanations for how Skripal and his daughter might have become ill or, or poisoned. Um, and in both of those instances, we saw significant activity from Russian diplomatic and official accounts, significant activity from Russian state media, and the use of these multiple conflicting narratives, not necessarily to create the idea that there was one particular alternative explanation for these events, but rather to say it's impossible to know what really happened in any of these instances. Um, and so, like, don't blame us. There's, like, a ton of other possible explanations. We'll never really know the truth. And those are the tactics that it appears the Chinese Communist Party and its official diplomatic and party state media are adopting here, directly spreading disinformation from their own accounts, multiple conflicting theories, which with apparently the idea of really, you know, creating the impression that it's impossible to know where the virus actually originated. And then the third element that we've seen starting to have a little bit of a, of a mirror is the use of what we talk about as gray sites or gray accounts. So there's a whole ecosystem of conspiracy websites and blogs that Russian disinformation often engage with and amplify, or that um, alternatively that amplify Russian disinformation. And in two instances, we have seen Chinese officials actually sharing content from these uh, gray conspiracy websites in, as part of their efforts to push disinformation about the coronavirus. Zach, anything to add? No, I think that's a that's a great summary of what we've seen. And I, I do think we have to be quite worried about this trend in, you know, the similarities we're seeing now between the kinds of behavior we've long seen from Russia and what we're seeing from China. And one question, as Laura has mentioned, is whether we're going to see some sort of cooperation between the two in their messaging campaigns. In some places, it does appear that they have coordinated messaging campaigns on COVID-19, but I, we don't have a lot of evidence of that at the moment, but it's something I think we should definitely be on the lookout for because that would signal a real concerning shift, in my view, in the efforts by you know two leading autocratic governments to interfere with the messages that are being spread in democratic systems. And Zach, just to follow up on that, do you guys see this as an alignment of geopolitical goals between Russia and China? Things that I've read in the past have shown kind of an aligned overarching goal in terms of being kind of on the outside of the traditional liberal international order. Though Russia tends to want to break things, China tends to want to gain itself economic access and cooperation. Do you see this as an evolution and an an alignment of geopolitical goals, or is this something different? That's a fascinating question, and it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. This really is a different type of behavior than what we've typically seen from the Chinese, and I think it is possible that the reason we're seeing that new type of behavior is because the Chinese are worried uh, that they can't simply pass along positive messages anymore and that now they need to have a more competitive messaging effort than what they've had in the past. As you said, they really have tried to build up 
China more than bring others down, which is what the Russians have done. But this disinformation effort in the United States certainly seems aimed not at building China up, but bringing down the United States or Italy with this kind of rumor mongering. And so I I do think it's possible that the Chinese state increasingly is seeing its interests as a little bit more aligned with Russia in terms of the messaging campaign. So this question could be for either of you. I'm curious, what has been the impact so far in terms of audiences or a certain message or conspiracy theory traveling further maybe than it would have before? In addition, what is the impact on domestic Chinese audiences? You guys said that this is outward messaging. Is there messaging going internally also to domestic audience? That's kind of a twofer. You guys could split up the answers if if you'd like, or someone could just jump in. So I'll take the impact question. I mean, impact in the disinformation space is one of the hardest things to measure, especially when we're in the middle of a crisis like this, where, you know, you mentioned at the top, Sydney, that you know, there's been talk, including from the WHO, of how this is an infodemic alongside the pandemic. And so right now we see an extremely polluted information environment with a lot of myths and disinformation coming from many different directions. So it's really, really hard to measure the impact either at an individual level or at a broader societal level, especially in the moment. You know, maybe at some point we'll be able to go back retrospectively and, and get a bit of a sense, but I think it's it's really hard to answer that question um, right now. The one thing I do want to point out, though, is that, you know, it's in one very notable move earlier this week, um, you know, the European Commission's high representative, Joseph Farrell, talked about this narrative competition that we're seeing and really directly called out the Chinese efforts to essentially weaponize the political aid that they're providing to European countries for propaganda purposes and to try to portray China as an alternative to the U.S. for European partnership. And, you know, I think it's telling that if you're getting that kind of statement from a very senior EU official, it's a signal that it is raising real concerns in government quarters. And I, I actually think that his statement, it was a it was notable in that we've not seen that kind of previous statement from senior EU officials about Chinese activity in the information space. And it actually struck me as exactly the kind of messaging that we need to really shine a light and expose what the Communist Party is trying to do with information in this moment. I would just add that I think the one area where maybe it's having the most effect is on the kind of comments coming out of U.S. policymakers. You know, this belief that U.S. policymakers for some reason have to use the words Chinese virus or Wuhan virus to respond to Chinese disinformation, I think has done real damage to America's standing in the information space. So, you know, Secretary Pompeo reportedly wouldn't agree to a G7 statement unless it used the words Wuhan virus. I I think this is a U.S. response to the Chinese disinformation, and it's a really self-defeating one, in part because it makes it look like the U.S. and China are both engaging actively in this information space in negative ways. 
And it's true that the Chinese information is just flat out false disinformation, but the U.S. use of what are often seen as xenophobic terms, I think is unnecessary and uh, is really damaging the American standing in the information sphere. And so I think maybe one of the effects on the United States hasn't so much been on the views of the American people, but on the kinds of language that American policymakers are using. And I think in that sense, it plays directly into Beijing's hands. And, And just to wrap it up, looking forward, Zach, you just talked about kind of the unproductive ways that the U.S. has been responding to this. What would be a more effective way to handle this new strategy? And what are you two watching the most closely out of this? And what will you be watching as it plays out in the future? Well, I'll offer a couple of thoughts, and I know Laura has other views. So one one thing we can do is just straight out call the disinformation out where it's occurring. We don't need to use other terminology to do that. We can just say that this is false. We should call it out publicly. Uh, And I think the State Department has done some of that. There was a cable that State reportedly sent out to embassies and asking American diplomats to confront this disinformation where it occurs. I think that's the kind of smart effort that's needed. But, you know, we've learned a lot from what the Russians have been doing about how to push back. It's not to say that we have great answers in all regards, but I think we've got to start pulling out our playbook for responding to Russian disinformation and trying to use that a bit in response to the growing threat of Chinese disinformation. Yeah, I agree with everything Zach said, and I would just make three points. One is that, you know, Zach's exactly right when he talked about the harm that some of the messaging and language that we're seeing from U.S. officials is doing. So anytime that U.S. officials are, you know, weaponizing information themselves, using xenophobic rhetoric, engaging in disinformation um, activities on our end or being anything less than truthful or transparent, it plays right into the hands of those that are trying to manipulate. So being truthful, transparent in our own information uh, that the government is putting out, that U.S. officials are using, refraining from xenophobic commentary, all these things are, are really important, number one. Number two is we need to be exposing exactly what the CCP is doing. And as Zach said, this is part of the, the our playbook of responding to the Russians. It's what it's some of what we've seen our EU partners doing, as I mentioned, and we need to be calling it out as we see it. And the third piece, which I think is really, really important, is that alongside working with our partners and allies on the pandemic, which we're not doing nearly enough of, we need to be working with our partners and allies on the infodemic. This is a challenge that we are all facing, and we need to be working together in a multilateral fashion with other democratic nations, with civil society as partners, with the private sector as partners, to combat this jointly. If this is seen as a sort of unilateral approach, we are going to lose. And part of the CCP efforts is to divide the U.S. from our allies. And so one of the most important things that we can be doing in response is to actually stand united with them. The final point I would make more broadly, which is not just about the information piece, but is about you know, the broader response is that some of what China has been able to, you know, weaponize in this moment has been failures by the United States in our broader response to the virus. 
And every time that the Trump administration fails to take steps or sends confused messages or really is not doing what it needs to do to respond to the virus, we are just feeding the party state the narrative that they want. Um, And so getting our own act together on multiple fronts is one of the most important things that we can be doing here. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you both so much for joining from your respective homes. We hope everybody stays safe. And I'm sure this is going to be a conversation that continues as events unfurl. So thank you so much. Thanks, Sydney. Thanks, Sydney. The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. That's a wrap.